Since I'm from Indiana, I'm a Colts fan, and I can't not be a Colts fan. Uh, since I've been in Florida, I've grown to like the Tampa Bay Rays since they went to the World Series this year. That was a, a treat that we often don't get. And since I spent time in the great state of Iowa, I still love the black and gold Hawkeyes. You know, that was, uh, that was time. But you know, even though I'm fans of these teams, Indianapolis has not called me to put on the shoulder pads at all. I can't understand that. Tampa Bay has not paid me a contract to step up to the plate, and the Hawkeyes don't want me anywhere near the hard court. I'm just a fan, not a member of the team. They don't need me. But when we talk about the early church in the book of Acts, they were not just an apostle-run church, a top-down run church. Besides the apostles, God used laymen in the early church in a powerful way. They were not just fans, they were members of the team. In Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 15, it specifies two different times when laymen were used in a powerful way. All the other, church, all the other chapters of Acts, it's been about the apostles. Now, we're seeing the work of laymen. Follow along as I read Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 15. Now in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, it's not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. Then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Then there arose some from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, Syrians, Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia, disputing with Stephen. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. Then they secretly induced men to say, we've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him, seized him, and brought him into the council. They also set up false witnesses who said, this man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place in the law. For we've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. And all who sat in the council, looking steadfastly at him, saw his face as the face of an angel. Father, I pray that today as we look into this passage, you would help us to learn how important how valuable the work of laymen is in your church. 
In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's look at two examples of the work of laymen in the church. The first is in verses 1 through 7, and it is, has to do with the choosing of the seven, the choosing of the seven. There was a need that was presented in that early church as they were growing and as they were uh, establishing there in Jerusalem. The church was growing. It, as you see in chapter 1, it started out at 120. And then after chapter 2, we see that there was 3,000 added. A little bit later, there was the number of the men was, came to 5,000. And now Luke is giving another one of his progress reports, and he says that in verse 1, the number of the disciples was multiplying. It wasn't just adding, it was multiplying. More and more people were coming to faith in Christ and adding to the assembly of the church there in Jerusalem. So no doubt there was some growing pains that were in the church, and there was bound to be problems. The more people you get, the more ministries you have, and the more more that uh, things going on, the more trouble you're going to have. Well, normally things were growing well, but then there was a complaint arose in the church. A complaint there in verse 1. Now, that never happens today. We never have any complaints in the church. Uh, only at least once a week, you know, or something like that. Usually what it is when people come up to me and says, Pastor, don't you think that this church is really warm? We need to turn the temperature down. And then right after them, someone comes up to me and says, Pastor, don't you think we ought to warm it up in here? I'm freezing to death. And, you know, what do you do? It's like, you know, the three bears, you know, it's too cold, too hot. There's no Goldilocks where we can make it just right. But usually there's complaints about a lot of different things. Well, the complaint here was that somebody was being neglected. Now, there was a, a ministry that the church had to the widows, which was a great thing because there was no social security back in the Bible days. So if you were a widow, you had to depend upon your family. But what if you didn't have any family? The church, those that have gathered together in the name of Jesus, decided that they want to take this on as a ministry. We're going to take care of those who are truly widows that have nobody else. So they, they, every day they would come and they would pass out money or goods to help these poor widows. But what had happened in the church there in Jerusalem was there's at least two different kinds of, of cultures. There were the Hebraic Jewish believers and they were the Hellenist Jewish believers. What's the difference? Well, Hebrew, of course, would be the natural-born Hebrews that were lived in Palestine. They spoke Aramaic. And then the, the church also was made up of Jews that were saved from various parts of the country that were Greek-speaking. So they, didn't, they weren't steeped in Aramaic. So there was a cultural difference in the church. And we have that today. You know, we've got different cultural backgrounds. Sometimes his churches have Hispanic ministries or Haitian ministries, or they even have uh, up in Northport a lot of churches from Russia and Ukraine. They have those type of ministries. But we also have other cultural backgrounds in the church today. We have people that are uh, from a more wealthy background and then people that are poor. Some people are, are city and some people are country. 
Some people are multicultural, and some people are rednecks, especially down here in Florida. We have all different kinds of cultures. And sometimes there's a clash. Well, in that early church, there was definitely a clash of cultures. What the problem was, they were overwhelmed with people, and they neglected. They neglected the Hellenistic widows. I don't think they did this on purpose, but somehow they got overlooked. <laughs> you know, that's a, a buzzword today, too, and it happens in the church today. Sometimes, folks, listen to me, you are going to get overlooked. Somebody is not going to notice what you do for the Lord. Sometimes you're not going to get the pat on the back. Sometimes they're going to overlook your skills. Sometimes they're going to over, overlook you for a promotion. Or sometimes you're going to get overlooked with some kind of ministry you want to do. And it's going to happen. And it happened in that early church. They were overlooked. And see, what had happened, that the apostles were overwhelmed. You see, they had created their own problems because they were trying to do too much. Well, the 12 were trying to do everything in that church. As a matter of fact, they were out preaching the gospel, and then they had to come back to church to pass out the groceries. And they just couldn't do it all. And that's why there was problems in the church. The ministries was being hampered. And sometimes that happens today when pastors are trying to do too much. I knew a pastor friend of mine back when I was pastoring in Iowa, and he loved politics. He just loved to follow politics. So he ran for office. And pretty soon, his uh, office seeking and his political career began to overtake, and the church was being neglected. And he ended up leaving the church and taking on that political thing. Sometimes, uh, pastors might get involved in civic organizations and community clubs, and all of those things are great, and it's great to have ministries into the community. If they don't overwhelm your main ministry to preach the gospel and teach and disciple people of God, so you need to understand that. Sometimes pastors can get, go, get so um, uh, spread thin and trying to do everything that they can't do the main thing the way, so they needed a, uh, a solution. And a solution was proposed there in these verse. It says in verse 7, verse 3, it says, Therefore, seek, brethren, seek out from among you seven men, seven men of good report, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, which we may appoint over this business. Now, this shows that they had congregational government. The whole church was gathered together, and they said, the apostle said, hey, choose some guys. Choose seven men that you trust and that are spiritual that we may appoint over this business. And they did. And so this is a kind of a, an early church government of the congregation making those decisions. And you notice the names that they chose? All of these names, Stephen, Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Herminius, and Nicholas. If you don't know, these are all Grecian names. So... They chose these seven based that they would take attention to the ones that got neglected, the Greek-speaking widows that were neglected. So all of these seven had those names to take care of this. We don't know much about these seven men except for the first two, Stephen and Philip. We're going to be speaking about Stephen today and next week 
and then Philip we'll see later in the book of Acts in chapter 8. You know, I like what the Coverdale Bible translate this phrase, daily distribution. It, he calls it the daily hand-reaching. Everybody was sticking their hand out, and they were ready to receive goods from them. Well, the solution was proposed, and the outcome happened to be pleasing in verse 5, and the saying pleased the whole multitude. They were happy. Uh, what was the outcome of this? It says in verse 7, then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. The apostles now were free to do more evangelism, to do more discipleship, to get out there and see more people saved because they weren't having to sit back passing out groceries. So they were, they were the ones that God blessed that because of the, the spreading of the ministry into the hands of the laymen. And the number of the disciples were multiplied, and a great number of priests, they were, able, they were even able to crack into the priesthood. Now, these were not the Sadducee priests, the high priests. They were the, just the, the regular, good-hearted priests that accepted the gospel. So that was, the church was unified, the church was multiplied, and the church was magnified. What are the applications that we can make to these guys in the choosing of the seven? The first application, the blessing of God may necessitate changes. When God blesses a church, changes are inevitable. Changes in administration styles, changes in facilities, changes in personnel, changes in ministries, changes in technology. If you've been around Peace River very long, you've noticed that we have gone through a lot of different changes over the years. The facilities have changed, personnel has changed, adding more deacons, adding more people, adding more seats, so many changes if you know the history of our church, and we've been willing to do that. It's very important. What if that early church had continued to do things the way they'd always done them, and they would have been stuck? Churches do that sometimes. Churches reject change and they get stuck. I remember a church, I usually use this illustration in the new members class, so some of you have heard this before. Uh, when I, my wife and I were pastoring in one church, we, as we usually do, I look over the Constitution and see what they had. And they had a section in the Constitution that listed the things that the members were not supposed to do. If you were a member of this church, you were not supposed to drink, you're not supposed to smoke, you're not supposed to go to movies, you're not supposed to do all this. And at the bottom of that list, there was one little thing. If you're a member of this church, you were not supposed to play shuffleboard. You, thou shalt not play shuffleboard. Maybe not in those words, but that was against the rules. So me, like a dummy, I go around to the church and ask them why. Why in the world... Is that in there? And you know what? They did not know. It was somebody from the ancient days that there must have been a reason, but nobody in that church knew why it was wrong, unbiblical, unholy, sinful, that you need to repent of to play shuffleboard. But nobody, no pastor, nobody in the church had the courage to take it out of the Constitution. It's in there. It's like the Word of God. We can't change or something's going to hit us from heaven. You know, if you're going to grow 
If you're going to do the work of God, you've got to be willing to change, change in church uh, styles, not change the gospel, not change the biblical standards of morality, but you need to change. We see here uh, another application that I'd like to make. Service for God requires high spiritual character. Look at verse 3. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. What business? Passing out groceries. Does it take spiritual character to pass out groceries? They insisted that if you're going to serve the Lord in this church, you need to have a character that matches, a character that reflects the Word of God. And I think that that is a lesson for all of us. When we serve the Lord, we need to understand that we represent Jesus Christ and we represent our church. And so our character does matter. Even if it's in mundane things like passing out grocery, you need to have the character that was behind all of that. It's another lesson that I can learn here. Now, in chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, we don't hear the word deacon being used. But I believe these men would be the precursor to what Paul later on in the epistles addresses to the leaders of the church, the pastors and the deacons. Philippians 1.1 talks about that. Also, when Paul wrote to Timothy in chapter 3 of, of 1 Timothy, he gives the qualifications for deacons and their, their duties of deacons. And so they're similar here. This, is, this title is given to them later in the epistles, but I see here a precursor of what the church would later adapt as the permanent office of deacon. The word simply means a servant. What were they doing? What kind of function did they have? The first function that this group had, these seven, they took the load off the leaders so that the leaders could go and preach the gospel, disciple people and pray, not pass out groceries. They, they were able to, to make the job of the leaders of the church, the pastors of the church, the apostles in this case, make it a little easier so that they didn't have to do all of that. And the second thing, they dealt with member issues. They cared for the needs of God's people. And that's what our deacons do. Our deacons here, we have nine of them at Peace River. I am so blessed to have these guys because they step up and they make phone calls. They visit in hospitals. They, they, I, I know they even done weed whacking for our church people and, and shutter removal and all kinds of things to care for God's people here at the church, and I'm thankful for their ministry, their people-centered ministry. Another thing this group did, and we need our leaders today to do the same thing, they maintained harmony of the assembly. They kept the focus on Jesus Christ, and everybody was happy when they, they were appointed to take care of this issue, and they used their gifts to advance the cause of Christ. You see, that early church Learn the value of teamwork in ministry. I heard a story about an out-of-towner who drove his car into a ditch out in the country. And luckily, there was a, a local farmer that saw his car out in the ditch, and he came to help him with his big, strong horse. His horse was named Buddy. 
So he hitched Buddy up to the car and yelled, pull, Nellie, pull. Buddy didn't move. Then the farmer hollered, pull, Buster, pull. Buddy didn't respond. Once more, the farmer commanded, pull, Coco, pull. Then the farmer uh, nonchalantly said, pull, Buddy, pull. And the horse easily dragged that car out of the ditch. The guy in the car was just flabbergasted, so he had to ask the question, why did you call your horse three different names, different names, and he didn't answer? Oh, Buddy's blind, and if he thought he was the only one pulling, he wouldn't even try. <laughs> Teamwork is essential in the body of Christ as well. I mean, it's not just one, it's not just two. I, I'm so glad. that I tell you, the, the, the thing that, that lights my fuse is seeing someone get saved. But the second thing is to see God's people serving Him in the area that they are gifted in, in an area that they love and they passionately work together in the body of Christ. This is the first example of laymen in the church. And now we're going to look at verses 8 through 15 to see the second example of laymen in the church, and that is through the ministry of Stephen. <coughs> you see, Stephen is one of the deacons, and, or proto-deacons, or uh, precursor to deacons, whatever you call them here. His ministry was for that local church to pass out groceries and to help those widows, but his ministry was more than that. His ministry was people-centered in verse 8. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Now, I think that this phrase, among the people, does not refer to his in-church ministry. He felt that God made him for more than just that in-church ministry. He had a burden for lost people, people that were out in the, out in the community, so he went, and God had gifted him with a signs and wonders ministry, probably able to heal people, probably able to do some, some amazing things as a precedent for the preaching of the gospel. You see, he had a burden to reach those who were outside the walls of the church. He had a vision for lost people. And all of us as God's people, that's our job. The job of the shepherd is mostly to feed the sheep. The job of the sheep is to go get more sheep. And Stephen saw that. His ministry was people-centered. His ministry also was truth-based. Look what he did in verse uh, 9. Then there arose some from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen. They were disputing with Stephen. They were not able to resist the wisdom of the Spirit by which he spoke, disputing with Stephen. He was debating, he was disputing, he was preaching, he was teaching, he was uh, going through a, a, a line-by-line discussion with these Jews in this synagogue of the freedmen. And the, the one thing about this synagogue of the freedmen, uh, these were the ones that were uh, former slaves and they were released and they were from these four different areas, as you notice there in verse 9, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia. They were outside of Palestine. They had 
they had been released from slavery and they had moved to Jerusalem and they started their own synagogue. In Jerusalem, they had the temple where they would meet, but they also had several synagogues which there was more teaching. And this synagogue of the freedmen is where uh, Stephen found himself preaching the gospel, teaching them, disputing with them, arguing based upon the truth. And the, the one thing that's interesting, remember Paul, this is before Paul gets saved, Paul is from Cilicia. And of course, he's from Damascus, but the, the country, the region there is, the province is Cilicia. It's very possible that the Apostle Paul could, could have been going to his synagogue when Stephen got up and taught the Word of God and pointed everyone to Jesus. And notice in that no one was able to argue with him. No one was able to refute him because he used the Scripture and pointed them all to Jesus. So even the Apostle Paul could be in that audience when he was teaching. Well, what happened as he was ministering there in that synagogue of the freedmen, his ministry had uh, the effect of stirring up the people, stirring up the people. It says there in verse 12, and they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him, seized him, and brought him to the council. They set up false witnesses who said, this man ceases, ceases, does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. And then they cut more lies and more stirring up the people, and they arrest him, and they're looking for an excuse to get rid of him. So his ministry caused people to be upset, to be angry because he spoke the truth of God. And we've seen a lot of that here in the book of Acts, haven't we? And we're going to see more of it. But notice his ministry was also self-transforming. Now, in verse 15, it's an interesting verse. And all who sat in the council, this is the Sanhedrin, looking steadfastly at him, saw his face as the face of an angel. They took him before this same council that had tried Jesus and the apostles, and it was not even necessary for Stephen to speak in order to give a witness, for the very glow on his face told everybody that he was a servant of God, and certainly the members of the Sanhedrin would have recalled a verse in the Old Testament when another person's face glowed. Remember who that was? It was Moses when he was coming down from the Mount Sinai, receiving the law of God in his arms, and he came down the mountain, and his face glowed, and the Israelites witnessed that, and they see this same guy that they accused of being against Moses, his face also glowing with the glory of God. It was like as God was saying, this man is not against Moses. He is like Moses. He's my faithful servant. What I see here, that Stephen knew the truth. He, he had the truth in his mind and he had the truth on his lips. He was able to defend the gospel, but the greatest thing about it, the truth went through him and shone from his life. Oh, my friend. It's not enough to have the Bible knowledge up here. It's not enough to be able to argue, be able to dispute, be able to know all the theological arguments and, and be able to uh, 
win an argument, but it's got to come into our mind and come into our heart and come out in our countenance, our belief in Jesus, our love for the Lord, our knowledge of the Word, and the presence of God needs to shine forth from our lives, just like Stephen had the face of an angel. Well, what can we learn from this layman ministry in the church? The first thing I'd like to conclude with is an effective church cannot work without the involvement of laymen. And the challenge is don't be just a fan in the stands. Get on the team. Suit up. You know, laymen can reach people that preachers never would be able to have a word with. A lot of time when people know that I'm a preacher, everything gets quiet, you know. And that's, that's what happens. I have that effect on people sometimes. And, but, you know, you can get up next to someone and reach people that I never will be able to. Second thing, when you proclaim the truth long enough and loud enough, it's going to cause a stir somewhere, somewhere in your life. And the last application, let Jesus shine from your character, from your countenance, from your life. It's not enough that you know the truth. It's got to be lived in your life and seen and witnessed that you are a believer in Jesus Christ. We're going to be having the Lord's Supper now. I encourage you to think about your own life as the elements are distributed and, and we think about Jesus going to the cross. We think, ask the Lord to forgive you of any sin, any animosity, any, any selfishness that you've been feeling and ask the Lord to cleanse your heart. Man, you come as we get ready to celebrate the Lord's Supper. like to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 11 about Paul giving us the ordinance of the Lord's Supper in verses 23 to following. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, take, eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. This ordinance is for believers in Jesus. It's for those that have asked Christ to forgive them of their sin. If you haven't, there's nothing for you to remember. It's to remember what Jesus did for us on the cross. So if you know the Lord is your Savior, I encourage you to partake, but examine your heart. Make sure there's something that, if there's something you need to confess, use the time when the elements are being distributed to just bow your head and commune with the Lord and ask Him to forgive you of anything you have against somebody else, anything that you've done that you 
need to confess before the Lord and just focus on Jesus and the cross as these elements are presented. Man, will you come as we distribute the elements today? and ask his blessing on the communion service. Father, we are so thankful that you have given us your son. His body was broken. His blood was shed. And Father, as we receive this today, may we think about Jesus and what he's done for us and forgive us of our sin as we commune with you. In his name we pray.